Mike and I are going through a new season of life. Now, I know you're thinking, are they really going to talk about the grandkids again? Like, I promise you, we will not do that every Sunday. But I want you to know this. Mike was doing uh, the calculation the other day, and he came to this conclusion that because our daughter and son-in-law had twins, we've had two new grandchildren in 2021, because our youngest son is going to get married, so our tribe is going to be increasing, that our family will grow in one year nearly 50%. Like, how awesome is that? How cool is that? And so what... Yeah, go ahead. One of you applauded. That's so awesome. I'm feeling the love. Okay. So here's the thing is like when you get to this phase of life is you begin to ask questions. And the question that Mike and I keep pinching ourselves in asking is this question. How in the world did we get here so fast? Like it just seemed to happen. And when you're in this season, you're asking these kinds of questions. What you tend to do is you tend to reminisce. And so you start pulling out photos. And so we're looking at photos to see like, who do the grandchildren most look like, right? Or our youngest who's getting married, I'm pulling out pictures of him and we see his little cute self and his head that's bigger than his body and his curly blonde hair and his big old cheeks with his dimples, right? And I'm just thinking, oh, until I came to the photo where he's got this crying face. And I remembered back, I had this flashback of colic. Like we just thought the first two cried a lot. But when Josh came along, he had six weeks where from 5 p.m. at night all the way through until 5 a.m. at night, there was this shrill cry. And I wasn't asking the question, how did we get to having three kids in our life so fast? The question going through my mind was, oh, dear God, when is this phase going to end? Right? And so you keep going through photos. And I came across another photo, and I didn't bring it because it's embarrassing. It's our wedding photo. And it's a picture of my big six foot wide fluffy dress with the puffy shoulders. And it had like a four foot wide bow tied in the back and the big hair to go with it. And you know what question I'm asking myself as I look at that photo? Exactly. What were you thinking? Like, did you have the same dress? Like, I don't know who said that. You must have, right? And so what happens is we hit these stages. We hit these phases of life. And it triggers these questions. I think it would be a lot of fun, actually, to uh, put together some kind of game that you play where you tell the story of your life simply by asking the questions that you asked at each phase of life. Um, but the other day, Mike and I were, uh, like just a few days ago, sitting on the couch and, you know, there's lots of questions that you can ask yourself about life. You all do it. Like, um, what am I going to be when I grow up, right? Um, where am I going to go to school? Uh, who am I going to marry? Do I want to be married? How many kids will I have? What job will I have? Where will I live? When will I retire? And we ask these kinds of questions. But then we ask these other existential kinds of questions like, who am I? And why am I here? And is there a God? And what is my purpose? Well, when we were sitting on the couch just a few days ago, I was, was frustrated and I was just thinking through life. And this is the question that came out of my mouth. What am I doing with my life? 
And as we begin to unpack it and think it through, this is how I begin to answer it. Well, when we first got married, I was a gymnastics coach, but I don't do that anymore. And then I became a director of children's mental and educational health at the center, but I don't do that anymore. And then I became a stay-at-home mom, but I don't do that anymore. And then we moved over to Zambia, Africa, and worked as missionaries, but I don't do that anymore. And when we came back and started the church, I had my own graphic design video editing business, but I don't do that anymore. I led our women's ministry for 12 years, but I don't do that anymore. I worked at a mark as a marketing manager at the international mission board, but I don't do that anymore. And so I'm at my stage in my life going, what, what am I doing with my life? You may look up and say, well, Lori, you're the, you're the pastor's wife. True. And I speak, you know, a couple of times a year, but the reality is this, is if my husband were to die tomorrow, my role would no longer be the pastor's wife. And so I would say, I don't do that anymore. And I'm sure you've come to some point in your life where you've either asked that question or you've asked some other form of the same kind of question. And if you haven't, I guarantee you that likely you will. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to dive into Genesis chapter 10, verse 12. Or excuse me, Genesis chapter 10 and chapter 11. Mike asked me if I would wrap up the section of Genesis that we've been going through. And I'm going to ask you some questions today. And if I were to ask you, we were to sit down and have coffee, and you were to say, hey, Lori, I don't know what I'm doing with my life either. I have two questions that God just put on my heart. And if I asked you these questions, it would actually tell me the answer and tell you the answer of what it is that you are doing with your life. So we're going to unpack Genesis chapter 10 and Genesis chapter 12 or 11. But before we do, here's what I want to do. I want to congratulate you. Because if you've been at Grace Point for the last two and a half months, you've been with Mike, he has been taking us on this journey through Genesis. And congratulations, because we are like 20% of the way done. Like, we only have four-fifths of the way still yet to go. But today what we're going to do is we're going to wrap up a section in Genesis right before we turn the page into Genesis chapter 12 and see a new season, a new section. So it just makes sense at this point in our juncture to kind of stop and reminisce and ask some questions. Now, before I go to the heart level questions that I'm going to ask you, let's just start off with an easier, more head level kind of question. When you consider Genesis 1, all the way to chapter 9, where Mike has taken us so far. Like, and I were to ask this question to you. What in the world has God been doing? How would you answer it? Well, likely you would go to Genesis chapter 1 and you would start there and say, Well, God had created all the world. Yes. And you might even tell me how he created it. He spoke it into existence. And you might even tell me the order of all that he created. But here's the question I want to ask you. Do you know why God created all things? If we go to Psalm chapter 145, I want us to look at this. This psalm that was meant to be sung. And in it, you're going to see all of the different things that God created. It's going to appear up on the screen. And here's what I want us to do. 
I want us to read it out loud. Now, I realize in a room, it's kind of sparse, and it's Grace Point Church during spring break, during COVID, right? And so you're going to have to, like, join in, and we're going to read it together, and let's look and see why it is that God created. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him, all angels. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. Praise the Lord, you great sea creatures in all deeps, fire and hell, snow and mist, stormy wind fulfilling his word, mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth, young men and young women, the old and children, let them praise the name of the Lord for his name alone is exalted. Why did God create? God created all things for the exaltation of his name. And when he created Adam and Eve, and he said that he created, created them to be image bearers of God. He gave them a mandate to go out and to multiply, to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth and rule over it. But sin is what they chose. And they were separated from the garden. And they were separated from the presence of God. So let's call these first two sections here, let's call it the foundation. And then let's call it the fall, when they fall into sin. Well, let's move along and see what happens. Now what we see is we see Cain and Abel, and Cain kills his brother. And sin begins to crescendo so much so that it says in Genesis that it grieved God's heart that he had made man. But he chose one man in his family whom he said was righteous. And who was that? Noah. And God sent a flood. And he saved his family. And when the earth or the waters subside and the ark is on dry land and Noah and his family leave the ark, God makes a covenant with them saying, I will never flood the earth again. And he puts a rainbow in the sky. And then he gives them the same mandate that he gave Adam and Eve. It says this in Genesis 9 verse 1, Then God blessed Noah and his sons saying to them, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. God created all things for the exaltation of his name. They were to be his image bearers. They were to reflect him going out and filling all the earth. So how did they do? Well, let's peek in Genesis chapter 10 and let's look to see how they did. This, this book here, this chapter here is often referred to as the table of nations. In it is like this long list. It's a, it's a genealogy of names. And so when you come to it, it's one of those chapters that a lot of people actually like to skip. But the thing about this specific genealogy is it's not just a a genealogy of generations. It's a genealogy plus an atlas plus an encyclopedia of all the beginning of ethnicity. So let's just kind of take a peek in here and see what it says beginning in verse 1. These are the generations 
of the sons of Noah. Firstborn, Shem. Secondborn, Ham. Thirdborn, Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. Now begins the genealogy, but look how it begins in verse 2. The sons of Japheth. It starts with the youngest son instead of starting with the oldest son. And we're going to come back to that in a minute. And the sons of Japheth, and there's a list of all of these names, but then it gets to verse 5 and it says, And from these coastal land peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language. We haven't heard that before. By their clans. We haven't heard that before. And in their nations. We haven't heard that before. So let's continue. And in verse 6, it starts with the second son. The sons of Ham. And there's some names now that you're going will be familiar to you. You see Cush and Egypt and Put and Canaan. Egypt and Canaan, like we're familiar with these. Canaan is the promised land. And then it goes on and you see this name in verse 8. Nimrod. Like, I have to confess, we may have called our kids that a few times. Nimrod. It's a word that Bugs Bunny actually uses to taunt Elmer Fudd. He calls him you Nimrod. Why? Because in verse 8, it says this. It says that Nimrod was the first on earth to be a mighty man. In verse 9, he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. So when Bugs Bunny says to Elmer Fudd, you Nimrod, he's not saying you great hunter. He's being incredibly sarcastic. But why does Nimrod matter? Because Nimrod becomes the founder of Babel or what will later we will know as Babylon. Look what else he founded. He goes into the land of Assyria and he built the capital of Nineveh, which is the city that Jonah refused to go to. So are you seeing some things begin to be familiar to you? And in verse 20, these are the sons of Ham and by their clans, their languages, their lands and their nations. And finally, he gets to the firstborn son, to Shan in verse 21. But why did the author of Genesis do this? Because what we're going to see is when you do the order this way, it's going to lead neatly over to midway to chapter 11 when we see Shem's genealogy again and then into chapter 12 when Mike comes back and he starts with Genesis 12. And it's going to start with Abraham, who from him or from Shem descended Abraham. And so it's really genius how the author has put this together right here. So, verse 32. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, in their nations and from these nations, spread abroad on the earth after the flood. So, are they multiplying and filling the earth? Are they keeping God's mandate to him to be image bearers into all the earth? Well, at first glance in chapter 10, it looks like it. Like, yes, like they're doing it. But the thing about it is this, is most scholars believe that Genesis chapter 10 and Genesis chapter 11 are not in chronological order. Rather, they are in an intentional storytelling order in order to get the audience's attention, the reader or listener's attention. Like, here's the outcome. Oh, but wait till you hear the story. Like, here's all the nations and they're all spread out. But let me tell you what happened. So we have the foundation, we have the fall, we have the flood. And let's just call this next section, I'm going to be a spoiler alert for you. Let's just call it the failure at Babel. So let's begin reading in Genesis chapter 11, verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. 
And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Now let's just pause for a second because what I want you to see is that these people had several things in their favor. First of all, they are united in innovation. Like this is a Tesla kind of thing. Like, look what we can do. Like we've got brick for stone and we've got bitumen for mortar. You know, when you're sitting in your office and you're having that blue water, blue sky kind of um, idea session and everybody around you is rallying together and everybody's in unity about carrying out this idea. Like that's what's taking place right here. Well, let's pick up reading where it says, and now the whole earth at the beginning again, now the whole earth had one language in the same words. It's not like when we say, well, everybody speaks English because there are variances in our English and words mean different things. So when Mike and I lived in Zambia, the national language there was English. And so when my car broke down and I needed help with a mechanic, I went to one of my friends whose husband was a mechanic, but the English that they spoke wasn't American English. It was, it was British English. And so when I asked her, like, how do I find the garage? Her answer sounded something like this. Well, what you're going to do is you're going to get out on the tarmac. You're going to pass two flyovers. When you come to the giveaway, the garage will be to your left. Pull in, pop the bonnet, and while they are fixing your car, they will top off your tank with petrol, but you need a hurry before they knock off. Yeah. And I'm like, I feel like a Nimrod. Like, I know that you're like speaking English, but I have absolutely no clue what it is that you just said. When it says here that they had one language, it literally means they had one lip. There was one vocabulary. There was one dictionary. There was unity and not confusion. So let's continue reading in verse four. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. Do you hear the rebellion? Verse five, and the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us. And I want to point this out because this is kind of mirrors the language we saw in Genesis chapter one, where God said, let us make man in our image, where we're seeing a glimpse at the oneness of the Trinity. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth. And they left off building the city Therefore, its name was called Babel because the Lord confused the language of the earth and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. And that's how chapter 10 came to be. We see people who built a city. They built a tower to make a name for themselves and they refused 
to disperse. We see God who comes down, confuses their language, gives them a name. And the very thing that they didn't want to do, which was to disperse over the whole earth, is what God causes to happen. And what in the world is God doing? Let me tell you what he's doing. God is at work in his world and is accomplishing his purposes in spite of the plans and the projects of sinful people. Now, what is really amazing about this chapter in these verses is the way that it is brilliantly told. And I can't make it make sense in our English, but if we could read it in Hebrew, what it would seem like is there's like this deep vocabulary. And as you're hearing it or reading it, you're feeling it and experiencing it. Kind of like if I told you that we grilled steaks last night and they sizzled. And if I kept talking about the heat and the aroma of the sizzle, like you can hear the sizzle as I'm saying it. You may even be salivating right now because it's like, ooh, steak. What time? Is 11.25? It's lunchtime, right? But also what's packed in here is deep irony, which we're going to get to. But the framework is also genius. And we're not going to go through it all, but it's, it's, it's what is called a chiastic structure. And what it simply means is this, is that it mirrors one another. So let me just give you an example so that we can kind of understand it. When the people say, let's go up and build or put together, God's response was, come let us go down and confuse or take apart. Well, like, why is that such a big deal? Because the brilliance of the way that it was written is meant for the readers or the listeners to go, oh, wait a minute. This is like a really big deal. Like, what we're seeing right now, this narrative, it actually becomes the hinge from everything that we have read in the first part of Genesis to the rest of the book of Genesis. Actually, we could say it's the hinge to the rest of the Bible because if you were to put your thumb in Genesis chapter 11, where we see nations and tribes for the first time, and you were now just to thumb through it, what you would see are families of the earth and peoples of the earth and clans and tribes and languages and ethnicities until you get to Genesis where it all culminates with every tribe and every language standing before God and exalting him. So this is the hinge, this narrative on which so much now swings. We could call it, even if we wanted, the preamble to God's promise and his purpose and his plan for all peoples. When we look at this and we read the story and we're like, God, what are you doing? Like, as image bearers of God, we ought to be invoked and provoked to ask the question, Okay, if this is what in the world that God is doing, what in the world am I now doing with my life? And so I want to ask some questions. These questions are not intended to be like intrusive or insulting or even intimidating. These questions really are meant to invite you to give an answer. But they're not the cognitive level, they're heart level. And you can choose either to give the answer that you want it to be, but I want to invite you to ask this question of yourself, same question I've been asking of myself, and let your answer be what is reality. Here's the first question. Whose agenda am I living? 
Whose agenda am I living? Your agenda will determine your goals. And your goals will determine your aim. And your aim will determine how you live your life. Look again in verse 4. The people say this, Come, let us build ourselves a city. Why? Lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Their agenda was to settle. They were united in ambition. They were united in determination to dig in and remain in that city that they were going to build. God's agenda was for them to multiply. God's aim was for his image to fill the earth. Their agenda was to build a city. Their agenda and aim was to stay put. By maximizing their agenda and their aim to settle down and move in, they end up minimizing God's agenda to multiply and move out throughout the entire earth. But I kind of get it a little bit. Like, because out there is the unknown. And out there is the unsure. And out there is the uncertain and the uncontrollable and the unpredictable. So, like, we kind of get that, right? Like, where are they right now? Well, they are in unity, in community, and it is feeling good. But we love our community. Like, we love to be huddled together. We love the place that we live. We love it that we live close to family. Or we love it that we, they don't live close to us. We love our social groups in our school. We love our social media community. We love our community at church. Like we are tight. It is us for no more and shut the door. There are people like these are our peeps, our tribe, and we feel safe and we feel secure and we want to settle. The reality is that unity And community is good. Community, though, becomes a problem when the people in that community are unified in disobedience against God. God had a mandate for them to multiply and fill the earth. Their agenda was to stay put and build a city and settle. What does this look like? How does this play out? Like, How does it play out in the church? Or I'll, I'll be personal, like, how does it play out in my life? It could play out like this, like, I'm kind of selectively obedient. Or maybe you could call it selectively disobedient then. Because, like, I am going to obey God and love my neighbor. But love my enemy? Mm. Or I'm going to obey my parents if, like, the rule that they gave me. Or... We are going to come together and we are going to learn scripture and we are going to learn everything about the gospel. But we are not going to go share it. Or we are going to make disciples and we are going to teach them all of God's command. If they'll come to church, but we are not going to go out into the world. So we have this selective obedience. Let me ask you a second question. Whose name in the world are you living for? Look in verse 4. They said, let us build a tower 
with its top to the heavens. Why? To make a name for ourselves. Like that phrase, make a name for ourselves, it kind of, kind of stings a little bit. I want to come back to it because what I also want us to see is I want us to catch this deep irony that's taking place. These people have this grand audacious goal to build this palatial huge tower that reaches up to the heavens. But then it says in verse five, and the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man built. Like, do you see the irony in that? Like this tower is so big, it reaches to the heavens, but the big God who's in heaven can't see it. Like he has to come down and like, look, like, let me put my glasses on. Oh, oh no. Oh, there it is. That little tower. But in their minds, they were doing something huge and they were doing something big for themselves. And we do this too a little bit. Like I could think about, think about a nephew maybe that you have and you're playing hide and seek with them in the living room and they're three years old and you're counting and they're hiding. And so you're like eight, nine, nine and a half, nine and three quarters, 10, ready or not, here I come. And they're like three feet away from you behind a curtain with their feet sticking out and they're giggling. So the curtain's moving and they're shouting, I'm ready, I'm ready. And what are you doing? You are walking around going, where are you? I can't find you, right? Oh, come, don't don't leave me hanging like I'm the only idiot that does that, right? We all do that. And that that, that is the narrative here that the author is trying for us to see that it is ridiculous. You might be a designer, a real estate agent, a student, social media influencer, a stay-at-home parent. You might have a contagious personality. You may have wealth. You may have the ability to speak or to create or organize or lead. And you can leverage those things to create a culture and a community that props up your name and exalts you. And then when God looks down at how we've built our life based on our name to him, it is nothing more than scaffolding temporarily, propping up some perception of what we want other people to think about us. We all, honestly, like, we want to aspire and attain to great things. We all have ambition to accomplish big goals, to become great people, to do something with significance. We all crave approval. We all crave the credit. We all crave, in some form or way, to make our name known. And if I were even like really honest with you, like there is this part of me, the seed within that while I am teaching you about exalting God's name, like if I do it really well, maybe you'll exalt mine too. They wanted to make a name for themselves. They were unified in downgrading God's mission to upgrade their own. They wanted to make a name for themselves. The reason that this phrase stings is because it reveals this. It reveals not so much just the action that they did of building this grand tower. It reveals the ambition and the motivation of our heart that we like to keep secret and to our 
selves. So let me say it a different way. You might be a designer, a real estate agent, a student, a social media influencer, a stay-at-home parent. You might have a contagious personality. You may have wealth and the ability to speak and to create and to organize and to lead. And you can leverage those things to create a culture and a community that would exalt his name alone. We can be full of ourselves or we can be full of God, but we cannot have both. We can be aligned with his agenda or we can be aligned with ours, but we cannot have both. I can exalt his name or I can make his name great, but I cannot, or make my name great, but I cannot have both. As followers of Christ, we are called to live our life like Christ lived his life. In Philippians chapter 2, it says this. It said that Jesus, being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself. Jesus didn't come to make his name great. He didn't come to exalt himself. But then it goes on and it says this. Therefore... God exalted him to the highest place. And he gave him a name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. You see, name has weight to it. Our grandson was named after his dad, who was named after his grandfather. And with that name carries a weight of generations of tradition and character. My granddaughter was named Selah. And she was intentionally named this because her parents wanted her to know that when before her life came along, they had to trust God in a journey of fertility that God would give them this child. We, we said to our kids when they were growing up, remember that you're a McDaniel. And we would say it when they go to spend the night. We'd say it when they go on a date. We said it and went off to college. And it meant this, look, your name, McDaniel, it actually has some responsibility to it. This section of Genesis is coming to an end. And it says at the end that God went down. He confused their language. They couldn't understand anyone. And he gave them a name. And he called them Babel. Because he confused their language. And from this, we now see confusion and disruption and division and segregation and racism and tribalism and nationalism will now plague the earth. And their fear became reality. Their fear of being dispersed upon the earth became the very thing that God did. But when we turn the page to chapter 12 of Genesis, what we are going to see is God choosing one man named Abram. And he said this to Abram, I will make your name great. Not you. I will make your name great. And through you, all the families of the earth, all the nations will be blessed. So what we see in Genesis 1 through 11 is this history of creation. 
But when we swing it to the next chapter and beyond what we see pointing forward is the revelation of God's plan and his purpose until the end of history. A time when all creation, all tribes, all tongues, all nations will stand before him and give glory and exalt him alone. God's glory at that point will be on display when a representation of people from every ethnicity and in all of their diversity and in every multiplicity of languages, they are worshiping in solidarity and in unity, doing one thing, giving glory to God. And so what are we supposed to do in the middle? Because we live somewhere between creation and and chaos the Christ and then church and, and then Christ coming. We live somewhere between way over there and over here. What are we supposed to do in the meantime? All of God's creation is called to a non-negotiable mandate of making his name known in all the earth. All creation is called to an unwavering, uncompromising task of imaging God's name, of aligning with his agenda and exalting him alone. There are a lot of ways that we can end this message. There's a lot of ways that we can wrap up this first section in Genesis. And I just thought, you know, one of the best ways that we could do this would be actually to read scripture as an offering of praise to God. And then after that, we're going to sing. And so I'm going to invite you to do this. I want you to stand. I want you to put your phone down, your Bible down, whatever it is that you're holding. And I'm going to challenge you to do this. Because we're going to read scripture together as an offering, as a prayer. And we're reading on, on the screen. Sometimes it's just like, it's just words. But the challenge is before you. To answer the question, if you will, whose agenda are you living? Whose name are you living for? Because if you answer those two questions, I will tell you how you're living your life. Let's read this Psalm 148 passage as a prayer offering to God. I exalt you, my God, the King. I will praise you every day. I will exalt your name forever. You are greatly to be praised. Your greatness is unsearchable. My generation will declare your works to the next. I will speak of your splendor and glorious majesty. I will proclaim the power of your awe-inspiring acts. I will declare your greatness. You, O Lord, are gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and great in faith of love. The Lord is good to everyone. All you have made will thank you, Lord. They will speak of the glory of your kingdom and will declare your might. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your rule is for all generations. Lord, you are gracious in all your actions. The Lord is near all who call out to him.